We continue to work our way through the book of James. Today, um, we're going to look at the end of chapter 4. Actually, as you look at, as you read James, remember this is a letter, so it doesn't have chapter and verse in its original form. Chapter and verse is very helpful most of the time, but sometimes it, it, uh, it, it can be distracting also. This is one of those occasions where, uh, as we read this letter, uh, James chapter 4, verse 13, uh, the thought here does not stop at the end of the chapter. It actually continues on into chapter 5 in, through the first six verses. So, if I was going to do this, and I can't because I don't have time, and you wouldn't endure it, uh, but we should really read this uh, from James 4, verse 13, through James 5, verse 6, uh, because it is one continuous thought. And so next week, we're going to look at uh, the second part of this section of Scripture. So let's read James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. The word of the Lord. Next week... um, We'll continue here, and I'll give a little bit more um, background uh, to kind of tie these two sections of Scripture together. Um, So as we just read these verses, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, uh, there's a very practical way we can read these verses and apply these verses to our life. And we should... And Scripture has been given to us to apply to our lives. But we also have to keep in mind that Scripture, though written for us, was not written to us. So James is not writing his letter to Christ Fellowship Church in Taylor, Texas in the year of our Lord, 2023. James is writing to the Christian communities particularly, mostly Jewish Christian communities that have been dispersed as a result of persecution that arose in Jerusalem. And he's writing this letter specifically to these Christian communities. This letter was written and it was circulated among these Jewish communities because these Christian communities existed all over the known world. And so as the Jews gathered together, for instance, on Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection, or after the the, uh, crucifixion of Christ, all the nations were gathered there. Jews from every nation across the earth gathered in Jerusalem, heard the gospel preached by Peter, took the gospel back. But every year, three times a year, those Jews would come to Jerusalem. Well, eventually... Persecution arose. We see it in Acts chapter 8 when Stephen is stoned. And from that point, the Jews began to persecute Christians. It wasn't the Romans at first. It was the Jews. James is writing to these Christian communities who have experienced this persecution, who have been dispersed from Jerusalem because of this persecution, who are living under this persecution and are experiencing the temptations that have come to them because of the persecution. 
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see that by your Holy Spirit dwelling in us, you would open this word to us. And Lord, as it is always with your word, that we would see your word, that we would see Christ, that we would hear Christ, and that we would apply this word to our lives, and that we would be a people that would walk in obedience to your word, that your name would be glorified in the earth, and that our world, thereby our obedience, thereby the proclamation of your word, your gospel, that our world would be changed for your glory. Father, we pray these things, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, here begins the conclusion of James's letter. And in this conclusion, as James is beginning the conclusion of his letter, he is calling these exiled Christian communities to repentance from their sin of being conformed to the world. He calls them adulterers and adulteresses idolaters. And James is calling out these Christians for submitting to the world's authority by living and working according to worldly principles in order to achieve the peace and the prosperity they were seeking. So we know what Jesus said. Jesus, when his disciples asked him, Lord, would you teach us to pray? He said, here is how you should pray. Pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray to your Father that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer. If that's our prayer, what should our work be? To see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thus, the commission Jesus gives to his church us included, is to go and to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. That's what we have been tasked to do. The churches James is writing to are getting off task. It's not that they don't want to see the kingdom come. They desperately want to see the kingdom come because with the coming of the kingdom, their persecution will end. But the problem they were having was they were being tempted to bring the kingdom in a way that was not consistent with the way Jesus brought the kingdom. Remember when Jesus came, they were disappointed in Jesus because he didn't raise an army and militarily defeat the Romans, thus establishing the kingdom of Israel, or reestablishing it. And they said, you can't be the Messiah because you won't lead us in victory over the Romans. And to prove the point even more, as they mocked him as he died on the cross, they were like, what kind of Messiah is this? Oh, you could heal everyone else. Why don't you heal yourself? You saved everyone else. Why don't you save yourself if you're really the Messiah? And you see that there was a complete disconnect and misunderstanding of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah would do, even though they had it in the Word of God. Well, these Christian communities are now being tempted to use means inconsistent with what Jesus modeled for us to bring the kingdom in. We are to remember that Jesus calls us to be separate from this world, meaning we are in the world, but we're not of the world. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, Paul writes. And then he writes, all the old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. And then 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 begins with these words, Now all things are of God. 
In Christ, we are in this world, but we are no longer of this world. In Christ, now we are of God. And we're to be no longer conformed to the world. These Christian communities, largely Jewish in composition, were being persecuted by their Jewish brethren. The dispersion occurred as a result of the persecution that arose after the stoning of Stephen in Jerusalem. And it was then that the Jewish leaders began a campaign of persecution that led to this, this dispersion of Jews. These Jewish Christians were suffering intense persecution for their faith in Jesus who they looked to as their Lord and their Messiah. And the temptation they were in danger of giving into was to retaliate in kind. Listen again to the words James wrote in the preceding verses. James chapter 4, verse 2. James writes to these Christians, You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Now, I could go on, but we've already covered this ground. But I want to point out what James, the accusation James makes here is that you murder and covet. You fight and war. And remember, when we covered these verses last time, uh, we were going through James in, in a couple of weeks ago. This word murder means what? It means murder. And it's used to mean murder, the physical act, whenever it's used in Scripture. Now, we read this, and and you'll find many commentaries that will talk about this in a way that, well, this, this probably isn't actually really murder because Christians wouldn't be murdering people. Or we would think, right? But I want to present to you today the the view, based on what James is writing here, that perhaps James is actually calling out Christians who are resorting to murder in an effort to get what they need or what they want. Who feel justified in retaliating in kind against those who are murdering them. Remember Paul. What was Paul sent to do? Paul is, the, the, the book of Acts tells us that Paul was the young man who guarded the clothes of those Pharisees who stoned Stephen to death. They had to take their clothes off so they didn't get blood all over them because stoning someone is a, is a bloody deed. Paul was guarding the clothes of those men who were Casting those stones, and I don't mean little rocks, I mean big rocks, that would cause blood to splatter everywhere. So they, they removed their clothes so they didn't get their nice religious garments bloody. As they righteously, justly stoned this man to death in their mind. And then they sent Paul with authority to go house to house to arrest Imprison and yes, even approve of the death of those followers of Christ. Well, do you think Paul was the only one? No, he was not. And so this is what was happening. They were sending men out to arrest, imprison, and have murdered these followers of Christ. And the temptation was... What should we do? Should we just let them murder us, or should we fight back? After all, Jesus said, pray the kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Maybe this is the time for us to to rise up and oppose them and bring the kingdom in. So the accusation James makes in verse 2 of chapter 4 is murder. Now, there's no dispute that this could include the metaphorical use of the word murder, like we talked about. Jesus said, if you call your brother a fool, you've, you've committed murder. That, there's no doubt that was happening, right? But the text also gives us reason to include the literal use of the word with actions. James calls murder. Murder. 
And it's in those verses, James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10, that James goes on when he talks about them murdering and warring and fighting. He calls them adulterers and adulteresses. He tells them in James 4, 4, that friendship with the world, you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. You can't be aligned with the world and aligned with God. You can't be friends with the world. And, the, and what, the way we need to understand this is not just a casual acquaintance with the world. We're casually acquainted with the world because we live in the world. But we're not to be aligned with the world. We're not to get, go to the world to get our marching orders. We're, go, we're to go to God. We're to go to God's Word to get our marching orders. And our mar- marching orders are diametrically opposed to the orders that the world would give to us. It's in those verses, chapter 4, verse 7, where James writes, Submit, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Stop drifting to the world to try to solve your problems. Come back to God. Resist the devil. Submit yourself to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Don't go to the world to solve your problems. Don't adopt the ways of the world to solve your problems. Go to the Word of God. Go to Christ. And then he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. If they're trying to establish the kingdom and raise themselves up out of this persecution because they know Jesus is Lord and Jesus is King, well, then why are we under the foot of our persecutors? Let's raise ourselves up in opposition to them. James says, no, that's not how it works. You're to humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. He knows how. He knows when you will be lifted up. But if you try to lift yourself up, it ain't going to work out so well. Jesus is Lord. He has conquered all of his enemies and all of ours today as well. Even though we don't see all things under his feet, we see Jesus. And we know all things are under his feet because the word tells us so. So don't believe your eyes, believe the Word of God. Don't walk by sight and CNN and Fox and ABC and CBS and and everything else out there that lies to you. Walk by faith, guided by the light of God's Word, empowered by the Spirit of God that dwells in you. Resist the devil. Submit to God. Resist the devil. And the promise is he'll flee from you. This is the admonition that James gives to these believers. He wrote it to them, but he also wrote it for us today. As Christians, we're called to a completely different standard. We must not use the tactics of the world in the effort to lift ourselves up. If you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, the promise is that He will lift you up. To do this in the midst of adversity and persecution, such as these Christians were facing, requires faith. By grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus. They were to fulfill their privilege and responsibility that is inherent with the name Christian. So do you take the name Christian? And if you do take that name, there are privileges and responsibilities inherent in that name. Concerning the privilege and responsibility of the Christian life, and Jeff Meyer's commentary on the epistle of James titled, Wisdom for Dissidents, I would recommend it. He quotes Leslie Newbegin, a British theologian. And I quote Mr. Newbegin. 
We cannot accept the view that the only task of the church, listen, is to provide for individuals a place in the private sector where they can enjoy an inward religious security, but are not required to challenge the ideology that rules the public life of nations. The privilege of the Christian life cannot be sought apart from its responsibilities. The Christ who said, come unto me and I will give you rest, also said to those same disciples, as the Father sent me, so I send you, and showed them the scars of his battle with the rulers of this world. End quote. We all want to find that place of safe security in our relationship with God. And many of us, too many of us, would be very content to just hold up in our, in our nice safe space and put on our praise music and read our Bibles and our devotionals and pretend like the world outside doesn't exist. But that is not the responsibility you inherited when you inherited the name Christian. That is a privilege you might have as part of your Christian life. But your life as a Christian doesn't just involve privilege, it involves responsibility. And Leslie Newbegin says, it is not the task of the church, meaning it is not the task of pastors to create that safe, secure place for you. Whether it's in here, in your home, or wherever it is. It is our place to equip you to go out into this world and do the warfare you've been called to, the very warfare that Jesus still bears the scars of. The privilege and responsibility of the Christian life cannot be confined to what Newbegin describes as the place where we can enjoy our inward religious security. We not only have the privilege, but the responsibility to challenge the ideology that rules the public life of nations. What does that mean? That means we have the privilege and the responsibility to challenge the ideology that rules us, that rules our families, that rules our communities, and most certainly, that rules our churches. The privilege of the Christian life cannot be sought apart from its responsibilities. We must not seek to fulfill our privilege and responsibility by bringing about renewal in our society by using the tactics and the methods that imitate those of the world. Well, if they're mean to me, I'm going to get more mean to them. Well, if they're cruel to me, I'm just going to be more cruel to them. No, that's not what Jesus calls us to. That's not our responsibility. That's sinful. Instead, we are to imitate Christ in all of his ways. The Christian communities that James is addressing in his letter were dealing with much more than just the typical church issues we find ourselves dealing with. Who said you could paint those walls white? Did we take a vote on that? Or many of the other issues we deal with personally in our families or among friends and among co-workers... Things that apply. The things James is telling us, writing in his letter, apply to those things. But we need to understand that when James is writing to these Christian communities, they're not just dealing with little interpersonal squabbles in their churches. It's easy for us to read it that way because that's the world we live in. Because no one's knocking on our door or busting our door down in the middle of the night to drag us off to prison to be executed because we trust in Jesus. That's not happening here yet. No guarantee it won't one day, but it's not happening yet. Most of what we're dealing with are the interpersonal squabbles and relationships that, that can be very painful and very disruptive and very destructive. Yes. But we need to read this letter and understand what James is writing about and to whom he is writing 
so that we understand the issues, the real issues that are being dealt with here. So that we also understand that whatever it is that we're dealing with, whatever type of conflict we're dealing with, we're not to adopt the standards of the world to solve that conflict. We're to follow the ways of Christ. We're to imitate Christ, not the world. So they sent these men out like Saul of Tarsus to go and to stamp out this new heretical cult that stood in opposition of the status quo. That status quo was built, established, and maintained by the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. As we've gone through the biblical timeline on Wednesday nights, we talked about this. One of the things that Jesus was disrupting was a, was, was a, a great economic enterprise. That temple didn't just have golden walls and golden ceilings. It was a bank that held, it would be equivalent today to millions and millions and millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars worth of gold, silver, and precious things. And the religious leaders in Jerusalem ran that system along with the Romans. They had a deal worked out. And along comes Jesus, and he's disrupting everything. He had the audacity to turn over tables in the temple and disrupt our banking system, our exchange system. And guess what? His followers were doing the same thing because they were leading people from that system that had rejected their Messiah to faith in their Messiah and realizing that that system is passing away. And we're not to look to that temple. We're not to look to that system any longer. We're to look to our Lord and Savior, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. So those leaders could see the handwriting on the wall if this gained traction. So they were making a concerted effort to stamp out Christianity just as they had stamped out its leader, Jesus. They just didn't understand what they really did was seal their doom when they crucified the Lord of glory. And so James is writing and saying, don't resort to their tactics to gain your victory. You've already got victory in Jesus Christ. And that you might, you might hear them saying, well, how will we overcome then? John writes it in the Revelation. The Revelation of Jesus Christ would not be written for at least 20 years, maybe 30 years after James has written his letter. So James is not writing this with the revelation already having been written. John would have received the revelation on the Isle of Patmos with James's letter already having been written and already distributed to all those communities. Well, how were they to overcome? They were to overcome not with the sword, but by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. That's what John writes in Revelation. That's how the saints overcame. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. With this call to repentance from the sinful adultery of worldliness, we see that James also will provide encouragement in the face, in the face of the promise that God's judgment is coming. Jesus stood over Jerusalem as he's going to his death and he proclaimed in much detail the very judgment that would come upon that city and upon that temple. And he said not one stone would be left upon another. James was aware of that, of those words. The church was aware of those words. They knew that judgment was coming and they knew it would come in that generation that Jesus named, that they lived in. So we read it in James here, we read it in Hebrews when the writer of Hebrews says, this is passing away. How did he know it was passing away? Because that generation was passing away. And they believed the words of Jesus to be true because the words of Jesus are true. Jesus is not a false prophet. He is the greatest prophet. He is God. He is the word made flesh. 
And so as James is writing his letter, the promised judgment spoken by Jesus was certainly in his mind as he pins these words. Again and again, James is encouraging the brethren to submit to the authority of Jesus, their Messiah and Lord, and to reject violence against their adversaries. James encouraged patience, for he knew the day was approaching when Jesus would judge and destroy those who oppose him. So, in verse 13, James gives this strange little thing. It's a parable, actually, here. It's the parable of the traveling merchants. Listen to verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a place and spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. To help make this point and draw out the ethical consequences, James introduces a parable to help us understand what he's talking about here, what he's warning these believers of. And this is a message of both repentance and reassurance. So like the parables of Jesus, the meaning may not be obvious at first glance. There are some very practical truths that are very easy to focus on and perhaps miss the, the, the deeper meaning. We're not to be presumptuous. Sometimes I hear people say, um, you know, I'll say, uh, well, I'll see you tomorrow. And they'll say, Lord willing. Or they'll say, well, I'm planning to meet you tomorrow, Lord willing. Well, that comes from what? James is writing here. James is saying, don't say you're going to go buy and sell in a city. Say, if it's the Lord's will, I'll go buy and sell in a city. And so there's some very practical ways we should apply this to our lives, but we don't want to miss perhaps the deeper meaning that James is conveying here by those very surface and practical ways that we can look at this. Practically speaking, we should not be presumptuous, but humbly trust the Lord with our todays and our tomorrows. That's true, and we should live accordingly. But let's look at another meaning, perhaps, James is conveying here. James used, Jesus used parables to convey spiritual truths in his teachings. For instance, in Mark chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, Jesus quotes Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. Let me read to you Mark 4, 11 and 12. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Even Jesus' disciples said, Jesus, why do you talk in such a confusing manner? Why do you always use parables? They're hard to understand. And Jesus is like, yes, exactly. Yes. So you better have ears to hear, and you better have eyes to see. Those outside, all things come in parable. James 4, 13 through 17, is a parable. So is James 5, verses 1 through 6. It's a continuation of this parable. It's a warning to those rich and powerful Jewish leaders who sought to stamp out Christianity. The traveling merchants of James 4.13 and the rich of James 5.1 represent those Jews persecuting the church. There are a number of lessons one may take from this parable, but this is not a parable about economic commerce or even just presumptuous living. It is about spiritual commerce and trust in Jesus. James, like his Lord, is using economic commerce to teach us spiritual truth. We have a pattern for this in the Scripture. I'm not going to read all these Scriptures, but Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. He, Jesus is not actually teaching accounting in this, in this Scripture. He's giving us a parable about accounting to teach us a spiritual truth. Matthew 20, verse 1 and 2. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early one morning to hire laborers. Money. Matthew 21, 33. Hear another parable, Jesus said. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it, dug a wine press, built a tower, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country. He has an asset here. A money-making asset, a vineyard that he entrusts 
to others, and he goes away to a far country. And guess what he's going to do? He's going to come back, and he's going to ask for an accounting of what the vineyard produced. Do you think Jesus is just talking about grapes and wine here? No, he's not. Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Where do they travel? Land and sea. Matthew 25, 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. There it is again, commerce. Luke 16, verse 1, he also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. What is the point of all these parables that Jesus is giving to his disciples. The point is not an economics lesson. The point is a lesson about our lives and a lesson about the lives of others. It's about our souls, not our money. It's about the giftings that God has given to us for the purpose of doing what? Matthew 28 of making disciples of the nations, of baptizing them, of teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. Christ is going to come back one day and we're going to give an account of what we've done with what he's entrusted to us. That's what these parables are about. The imagery of economic commerce is used by Jesus to teach us about the kingdom and its spiritual principles. We also see this use in the book of Revelation. I found this actually quite fascinating. Revelation 3, 17 and 18. Because you say, I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and, you do, and do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Do you think Jesus is telling his disciples to, to, to get into the gold market? to liquidate your fiat currency and buy hard currency, gold and silver? No. And that's not what Jesus is saying. That gold represents something much more precious than actual gold. Revelation 13, 16, and 18, He causes all, both great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. And then verse 18 begins, here is wisdom. We need to use wisdom in how we apply these scriptures and not just think they mean something that they may not mean. They may mean something much greater than what we think they mean. Revelation 18 Verses 2 and 3, and he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen. Verse 3, the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. He's not talking about commerce. This is a spiritual application. He's talking about something much more valuable than what you can trade and load on a ship and send to a port somewhere and get gold for. Finally, Revelation 18, verses 11 and 13. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold, silver, precious stone, pearls. There's a whole list of things there. And then when he gets to the end of verse 13, it says... That is human souls. Jesus uses economic relations to communicate spiritual truths and specifically his displeasure with the Jewish leaders' handling of the spiritual riches that God entrusted to them for centuries upon centuries as God sent his prophets 
with the Word of God. And the most valuable commodity entrusted to these shepherds of Israel were the souls of men. And now, these shepherds of Israel are going out and they are stamping out the lives of the souls of men simply because they trust in their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. This parable presented in James 14, 13 through 17 is not about commerce of goods and services, but men's souls. The ultimate fall of Israel and Jerusalem was God's judgment for her rejection of Jesus the Messiah and then doubling down on that rejection as they perished in it, as they persisted in it by rejecting his bride, the church. Their trade was not for material goods, but the souls of men. The Bible likens us and our works to gold, silver, and precious stones, also to wood, hay, and stubble, and the fire is going to prove which one we are. These merchants rejected Jesus Christ and were now seeking the souls of men. This is their com com condemnation and judgment. So James writes, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go in such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. James is writing to these Christian communities to give them hope and to warn them by laying out the judgment that's coming to those in the world who are rejecting Christ, the very people persecuting them. And James is saying, those guys that are persecuting him, don't become like them. Don't adopt their tactics. Don't be like them. Be like Christ. Don't look to what they're doing to you, but look to Christ and know that they are already defeated and their sure judgment is coming. Don't get caught up in that and become one of those who will be judged with them. He's warning those who are tempted to adopt those same methods and conform to the same worldly standards instead of conforming to Christ. To do so is to make grave assumptions with dire consequences. James reminds us that our life is short. No matter how long our years are on this earth, James likens our life to a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And those rejecting Christ and believing they are serving God by persecuting the faith cannot even discern their own life, he says, much less the Lord Jesus. The judgment of God will come and blow away their lives like a vanishing vapor. So James is saying to the believers, don't. Stop looking at the vapor and look to the one that's going to blow the vapor away. The same is true today. There is a day coming when those proud of their rejection of Christ and of His church will find their vaporous life blown away by the judgment of God. On the other hand, for those trusting in Christ, no matter how hot the fire, it will only more greatly refine us for His glory. Ignorance is no longer an excuse. Verses 15 and through 17, James pins these words instead. So instead of doing that, this is what you should do. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. These traveling persecutors were to instead ask themselves if what they are doing is consistent with the Lord's word and the Lord's will. It was not. And instead of boasting in their arrogance, they should have humbled themselves in the sight of the Lord. And by refusing to do so, they are without excuse. Consider that in Luke 23, 34, Jesus is dying on the cross. And Jesus utters these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, Paul says in Romans, ignorance is not the excuse, it's willful disobedience. But Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Also in Acts chapter 3, verse 17, Peter speaking to the Jewish leaders about crucifying Jesus says, I know that you did it in ignorance. Deuteronomy 17.6 tells us that a person cannot be put to death on the word of one witness, but from the mouth of two or three witnesses let every word be established. Jesus extends forgiveness to those crucifying him for not knowing what they were doing. Peter professes that the leaders who crucified Jesus did it in ignorance. They did it before the resurrection of Christ. They did it before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. For with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God sent another witness to the Savior Luke chapter 12, verses 10 and 12. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus here in Luke chapter 12 is telling his disciples they're going to do this when? Before his crucifixion or after his crucifixion? It would be after his crucifixion because he says, when they take you before magistrates, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. The Holy Spirit wasn't poured out until 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit came as another witness of Jesus. That's why he was given to us, that you receive power to be witnesses to me in Judea, in, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 4, verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, and then he gives them the gospel. Peter gives witness to Jesus Christ by the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the rejection of Peter and all the other apostles and their words was a rejection and a blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. God had now provided more than two or three witnesses. Christ before and after his resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the apostolic testimony were all witnesses to Christ, so that when the judgment came in 70 A.D., it came justly and with cause, because those Jewish leaders who were out now persecuting the church, specifically Jews, and dragging them to their deaths, had multiple witnesses, and they were without excuse, and there was no forgiveness for their sin in their rejection of Jesus, in their blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. After the apostolic testimony to the Jewish leaders, they could no longer claim ignorance or lack of evidence. They were guilty of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and according to Jesus, this was an unforgivable sin. The judgment that God poured out because of their sin came in 70 A.D. with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, God had already raised up His true temple, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said so in John chapter 2. He is now building His true city, the new Jerusalem, the bride of the Lamb. And you and I are part of that city, the holy Jerusalem that will one day descend from heaven to dwell eternally in a new earth and a new heaven. But we must not be like the world and those who reject Christ. We are not to follow their sinful and violent way, but the way of Christ that has overcome all of his enemies, including death. We are his witnesses, empowered by his spirit, and let us be ready to fulfill not only our privilege, but our responsibility to see our world changed for his glory as his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth even as it is in heaven. May it begin in you and in each of us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us prepare to come to the Lord's table.
You have been called. You have confessed your sin. You have received the assurance of pardon. God has consecrated you by His Word. We are the ascension offering that is rising into the presence of God. He receives us in His presence, and now He invites us to commune with Him, to eat His bread and drink His wine, and so be empowered and refreshed and renewed to go back out and fulfill our responsibility to make this gospel known to the ends of the earth. Christian, as you trust in Jesus, come to the table. Please stand. Here in the verses that we've looked at today in this parable James presents, he gives both a warning and reassurance. He gives it that you may heed both the warning and be comforted by the reassurance that Jesus is Lord, that His judgment is true and just, and that if you are in Christ, you have been given His perfect and complete love, so much so that even in the day of judgment, John writes that we will stand in that judgment with boldness and confidence because as He is, so are we in this world. That is the true Word of God. And if that is true, then let us so live our lives in this world as Jesus lived His life. And let us look to and imitate not the ways of the world, but the ways of Christ. That our life would glorify Him and so change the world within us and around us to His glory. Amen? Amen. Let's sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Father, we ask that you would bless the food next door, that you would bless our fellowship, that the food would be nourishment and strength to our bodies for your service, and that the fellowship would build us up in love, that you would be glorified in your church. Father, we thank you for all of your gifts, and I pray, Lord, that each one would go next door and partake and be nourished spiritually and in body. In Jesus' name, amen. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant to you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Amen.